Hey everybody, it's Richard Harris here with my good friend Scott Lease uh, on the Surface Sales Podcast, which is brought to you by Lead 411. So if you are looking for intent data, direct dial phone numbers, cell phone numbers, um, or just trying to make sure that you have more information than your competitor, obviously check out Lead 411. We appreciate their sponsorship. And now on to something very, very exciting. Uh, we have with us from Lesson Lee. Um, he probably needs no introduction. You probably already know who he is just by the sound of my voice and how excited I am. Uh, we have Kyle Lacey. So Kyle, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so just from a background perspective, go ahead and tell people who you are so they understand where you're coming from, what, what your role is over at Lesson Lee, um, and then we'll dive into to marketing versus sales, which we know is one of your favorite topics. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so I, I, I'll leave out the starting an agency out of college and failing miserably. So my first, my first, Actually, that's going to be really good. We're going to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, we can talk about that. Um, my first stint in software was at a company called exact target based in Indy email service provider. Uh, we IPO bought by Salesforce spent a year at Salesforce. Um, a lot of my time at exact target was spent around content marketing, uh, producing content and, I think we were doing seven countries, four different languages, a lot of top of the funnel stuff, pipeline gen. Uh, spent two years at OpenView Ventures, so went from Salesforce to a VC firm. Got to see the other side of the house with raising money. Uh, OpenView's mainly Series B, B2B software, uh, checks sizes between 10 and 30 million. Um, and decided to leave Boston and head back where OpenView's based, head back to Indy, uh, where I'm from, and joined Lessonly. Lessonly's a portfolio company of OpenView. I've been at Lessonly for be four years in February, um, run the marketing team there. We are training software for sales and customer service teams and um, have about 170 employees, about 1,000 customers. And uh, I think the only other thing that might matter is that our marketing team is a little unique where our outbound sales team, SDRs and BDRs, report into marketing and not sales. And that is the story. Yeah, I, when I was at Qualia, uh, we were a user of, uh, of Lessonly. It's definitely my favorite training software, sales training software. Nice. Out there, so, and I work, at, I work at a portfolio company from OpenView, so I've spent time in that office in Boston so with a company called Mashery. Yeah. Um, we were, we were one of the first to sort of build our SDR program in-house at OpenView and housed at OpenView for a while as they tried to experiment with that in 2011 and 12. So I'm a big fan of Scott Maxwell and, and what OpenView does to support. How they support as ABC is really, really tremendous. Yeah. Um, you know, on the other hand, you know, I through, through no fault of my own, I, I, I use Litmos. So by all means, you're welcome to try and resell me. <laughs> give me a free license to transfer all my content over. Um, you we know, can definitely do that. Kyle, last night um, on Thursday Night Sales, somebody asked a question about sort of like how to uh, network internally and where to focus relationships and whatnot. And my answer, I don't know if you were still on the call or not, but my answer was um, – from a leadership perspective, I was saying, you know, when I come in, the most important relationship for me to make is with the VP of marketing and the VP of CS and actually not my relationship with my direct boss, which is typically the CEO. Mm -hmm. I was curious um, what you think about my answer and, and if 
if you would give similar kind of advice to somebody in a leadership role in terms of like internal networking and relationship building? Yeah, I mean, I, I would just adjust it a little bit to say anybody who's owning a revenue number is who you need alignment with. And, you know, we're lucky at Leslie where marketing owns a revenue number. So we have a seat at the table because we're producing. Uh, a lot of marketing teams don't have that, right? They're, they're influencing pipe or they're generating pipe, but they're not directly sourcing revenue. Um, so my, my, the people that I talk to the most are the customer success team and the sales team. If I was at a MailChimp or a type form, I might be talking more with the product managers and product marketing, right? Because they're, they, they are heavy product led growth, but I, I mean, Sales and marketing alignment, I think, is one of the most important things for scaling a company. I don't know how you, every, every company that I've seen break at certain revenue points was because there wasn't alignment at top of funnel. And that wasn't the main reason why, right? But a lot of the reason was because the sales leader and the marketing leader just were not in sync. What, and what does that look like specifically for anybody listening who yeah. is in need of more detail? You know, yeah, I've, so it's I've like been in that position too, and I'm thinking of my own examples. But you know, what does it look like to you? Yeah, it's like, hey, marketing sends over a bunch of marketing qualified leads, and sales would never agree that the marketing qualified lead was actually qualified. So marketing is sending over thousands of leads that are a bunch of content downloads, and sales is just saying, like, what the hell is this? Like, you're just wasting our time. That's one. The other thing is that the sales and marketing leaders don't meet weekly to talk about pipeline and forecasts. I think that's a huge huge issue. I don't care how big your company is. So those are, those are two of the largest ones. And then, and then just an understanding of what ICP and personas are, right? If, if you don't have agreement on who you're going after when you're trying to build, depends on the size of the company, right? If you're trying to build repeatability, you know, pre 1 million in ARR, especially for a software company, like you have to have alignment. Um, but those, I mean, what, what do you think? You've been in it way more than I have. Well, those, those are, those are all accurate um, for sure. But I'm, I'm thinking of just the blame game a little bit. And you kind of alluded to that with, you know, sales sort of saying, these aren't, these leads are not qualified. What are you talking about? And marketing saying, yeah, they are. Um, but I, I've, I've been in places where your data, Kyle, is different than the data that I'm looking at mm -hmm. where, you know, I don't exactly know how it works, but like, you know, you're telling me we sent over this much pipeline and I'm like, wait a second, I'm looking at the similar thing and it says you, sh you sent 75% of that and neither person backs down, right? Yeah. And animosity kind of starts. And if, if you and I are working together and you and I like don't get on very well, right? And it's kind of like known or visible, the animosity. Well, that sure as shit trickle down to your team Oh, and, yeah. and now you have not just two people who are kind of, you know, at odds, you've got, you know, 50 on each side or however big the company is. And that's, that's just a, that's a death knell, right? That's a, that's a, that's a cancer that is in, is, is going to rot the company from the inside out. So. You know. Yeah. Across the board, it doesn't matter what same, same goes with account managers, especially if they own a revenue number. Like if there's animosity there with the handoff between an AE and an AM, and the leadership team's not on the same page. I mean, it's, you're just, you're talking about, it might not break in the 1 million round, but you're sure as hell it's going to break at 10 million, right? And then you're going to be just off on a boat because you have no idea what to do. Yeah. So it's, I think it's extremely important. It's one of the more important things you can do as a leader. 
So what are the reasons to, to bring the SDR, BDR team under marketing specifically? I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with you. I just, yeah. I just had this exact conversation Wednesday with one of my clients, specifically telling them to do just that, to move the SDR group under the head of marketing. But for everybody listening, what are the advantages in doing that? Uh, I mean, messaging, alignment on ICP, content, being produced and and vetted through the marketing team if you have a great content writer where it you know it still is personalized but it it doesn't sound like a college student wrote it not saying that all sdrs do let me be very clear you just have a a a vetting process that's there that's not in sales the other side of it is that marketing should own a lot of the top of funnel in my opinion it's their responsibility to produce top of funnel and sdrs are top of funnel unless it's an sdr or a BDR that's working it through a deal, like a velocity account executive that might source 70, 80% of what their quota. Um, I say then it should live in sales. And then brand, this is easy for me to say as a brand marketer, I believe brand is so important now. Feature sets are just, like everybody has the same feature set, everybody's saying the same thing. Your ability to to uh, influence the, the beginning of the sales process with brand and with culture and with messaging, I think differentiates companies. And then hopefully your account executives can move through the sales funnel effectively. What, but, what does that mean though? Like brand, because I'm a sales guy and I hear brand marketing. Yeah. And I mean, you know, Scott and I are talking a ton about what's your personal brand, right? And I know how to do that for me as an individual, but what does that mean for an organization, right? Because you're right. Like it's, we are reaching that saturation point where in many verticals and industries, everybody can say the same thing. So to a certain extent, it might be how you say it, but what is, so what do you mean when you say brand marketing? I think the brand is mostly uh, from the culture of the company. You know, our, our mission statement is lessonly is we help people do better work so they can live better lives. And then we have vision and value statements, right? And our ability to make sure that people feel that, making our customers heroes. So how, do you take that? how do you take that and yeah. make that a, a marketing play? Like how it's, do you- it, it's focused on experiences. Like I don't, I don't want my SDRs doing mass emails that aren't personalized because that is not human and it's just bullshit, right? I mean, you could do a volume play all day long, but it's like if we're sending a direct mail it's not a water bottle. It's something personalized to that person because we care about the experience of that person. So it's I funny because I've, I've, I harped on this for the last week or two that the buyer's journey is dead, right? It's not about the buyer's journey. It's about the buyer's experience, right? You don't, you don't go to a brand new restaurant and say, how was your journey to the new restaurant? You say, how was your experience? What was it like there? Absolutely. And I'm not saying, I want to be clear. I'm not saying sales can't do that as well. I know sales leaders, revenue leaders that are amazing brand people, but marketing thinks about it all the time, right? right. Experience. The website has to perform. It has to be a good experience. The, the bot on the site can't be like, Hey, welcome first name and get screwed up. Right? So just because it is something that we think about constantly, and I'm, I'm mainly speaking on the Lessonly marketing team, it just made more sense to me to say the first touch across the entire company outside of AE self-sourcing should be owned by the, by the team that is thinking about the first touch constantly. That's a really good, that's a really good statement. Um, what, so there's, I looked on your LinkedIn profile, right? And there's this 
I know it's you know provocative in one purpose, but you know, one of your things says marketing is dead, right? <laughs> Which, you know, as a sales leader, Scott and I are already salivating. We're like, all right, we like this guy, right? Scott and I are like, okay, he gets to come to he gets to come to surf and sales, right? You know, so um, but what does that mean to you? Like, like because you could say the same thing about sales is dead, right? Like, you know, everything you've ever known before is dead. What, yeah. what does marketing is dead mean to you? And what, what, what are you trying to get across with that statement? I think uh, marketing as an influence is dead. I just, any marketer that says we influence pipe by X amount of percent, I think it's just bullshit. It's like marketing should influence 100% of revenue, right? Marketing should touch every single thing I, it's it, it could be net new it can be expansion they should affect a churn number because marketing is the experience right so when i say marketing is dead it's mostly of how we have reported in the past as marketers a volume so does, that mean, does that mean marketing needs to own a number yes so how do you how, how do you recommend people do that right uh build a strong inbound team where you are direct sourcing revenue or own an sdr team but often, and then I'll shut up and let Scott jump back in. This comes back to what Scott was saying earlier is that you then end up fighting over it. Yes, you did. No, you didn't. No, I did. Yes, I took the, you know, how do you solve? Because it's, it's really, it's really a compensation issue, right? So do you then, everybody gets paid? How do you attribute that? Well, okay, let me let the detail of that. Statement. Yeah, let me let me qualify something. When we say own a revenue number, we we base most of it off of direct source. What was the source that created the opportunity? And then all all the way through the sales cycle, the sales reps are the ones closing the deals, right? But if it came in through the website and it had a sales cycle that was X amount and it closed, that revenue is attributed to that channel. Which what happens with that? Well, I guess that since the SDR team does come to you, report into you. But what if it was an outbound mode? Imagine that SDR team doesn't fall under marketing. They fall under sales. And the first touch that best we can tell comes from the SDR team, right? But for whatever reason, that person finally comes back in through the website. Right? Yeah. It could be a month later, two months later, six months yep. later. Who gets attributed for that? We have a night, we have a 90 day policy on an opportunity on a contact. So if the contact hit the website, but but went closed loss and they came back six months later, it's whoever sourced it. It could be the website. They could directly go to the account executive um, because they were working with that account executive. And then the account executive gets credit because they nurtured that lead. Got it. Got it. Got it. Um, but, but because to your first point on fighting over it, because it's all about direct source and that's how we forecast and that's how we set revenue targets. Um, it's, it's we don't fight over it because it's like it's either inbound or SDR sourced, partnership sourced, referral sourced, or AE self sourced. So, do you? So then that comes to a question because I I I look at this too is that those are the sources. But what was? Do you try and attribute the direct source? Meaning it was this white paper. It was this. Yeah. So there's so there's sort of this what was the source, but then what was the very direct one particular piece? Direct, yeah, we, direct source is what we look at. We have attribution models that we could look at, but that's more for backend stuff on us trying to figure out if, I think attribution models, it's fine, but it's, it's well, I mean, number one, that we don't have content forms on our site, it's only a demo form. 
So I'm not sending leads to the sale, to the SDR team or the sales reps of people that downloaded an ebook. We just let Why it, not? Just give it. Why not? I, I think it's, I, yeah. hot lead. Somebody had this paper. I mean, that's, that's the reason why, you know what we, so August, right when we moved the SDR team over to marketing, August, 2018, we blew up our entire website and rebuilt it from the ground up in six weeks as a marketing team. And we got rid of all of our content forms and only went down to one demo form. And we cut our MQLs almost in half. So volume wise, like we were doing 50% and our revenue 10 X over a year. Yeah. So MQLs went down by half, revenue 10x by half on that channel, on the inbound channel, because we weren't working bullshit, right? And the bullshit leads that might come in, we put them in a Marketo nurture track. And if for some reason that Gmail account that filled out a form for a sales enablement piece comes back a year later and buys, like, great, but we're not spending human capital on it. Yeah. The, uh, the increased morale boost and oh, confidence yeah. and confidence from the sales side that something that does get passed from being is legit it's really hard to measure and quantify that um but as you just talked about it's demonstrable <laughs> your revenue went, went up 10x well conversion like if if account executive is is relying on marketing to produce 60 percent of quota we're going to be looking at conversion rates from, from an opportunity created to a closed one, like every single day, right? Because a lot of the AE's quota is being sourced by marketing. And as we grow and as we get bigger, that changes and that will shift. Right. But we have to send them good leads. Yeah. Um, and we are tasked to, and that's what marketing should be tasked to do. Let me switch gears for a second. And yeah. I want to know, what you learned from your time in venture that, you know, the rest of us who've never worked there don't know. What, what are some of the, what are some of the good and the bad if you could share, right? Hmm. I mean, a lot of what I learned, the good things that I learned was some of the um, negotiation that happens between founders and VC firms, like, selling stuff on secondary and what I should negotiate in my contracts as a leader, um, just on terms of shares investing and can you, um, can you give everybody, you know, one or two tips of that stuff? Richard and I love talking about this negotiation. I'm just not very, I'm not, you guys probably have better tips. I'm just not good at it. The problem oh. was is that I joined lessonly and then I learned all this stuff. <laughs> ah. But that's what we want to talk about. That, you, that's the problem. Hard. Nobody's yeah, taught I, these people how to do that. So that's what we, like, what did you learn post that made you go, oh my God, I wish I'd known that beforehand. And not in a negative way, not to like bash anybody, right? Like that's not the intent. Um, but how can we educate people to be more financially wise? Yeah, my next time around, I'll definitely be negotiating of my ability to share vested options on secondary if we do more raises. What does sure. that even mean? Like people don't even that, know what they mean. It means that uh, if... If things are vested and you're doing another raise, there's, they sometimes give founders, executives, early stage investors, the ability to sell their options on what they call a secondary market. And Scott, you can correct me if I'm going right here at all, but um, you, so a founder or a CEO has X amount of options that are vested. He could, he or she could potentially put that and the VC firm that is investing in this B round or C round can buy those options. So they take some cash off the table. Yeah. 
yeah, part, that's, part. that's the part I think people don't know is that when you go to get this B round or C round, that oftentimes the founder, they do get a million dollar check or a $2 million check, you know, Could way be. before anything goes public or they get bought. And it's I think not, that, I mean, yeah, and, and that happens. That's fair. They should be allowed to. They're the founder. I got it. But I just think it's important for people to know that that's what really happens. Yeah, but, but, but here's, the, here's the rub for me is like, why can't Kyle do that? as the CMO and why can't yeah. Scott and Richard do that as the CRO, right? And the, the, the thing is you can, you just have to A, know that it's possible, B, yeah. be brave enough to ask for it and, and not think that it means you're gonna lose your job because the founder thinks that you're not into it anymore, yeah. right? And C, know where to look and whom to ask. So for example, I, I won't say which, which company, but one of my companies a few years ago, I sold some of my options back to one of the venture groups who was dumping more money into the company in the next raise. So I was able to get a little bit liquid. I didn't sell all of it, but I was able to get a little bit out of it. And I used that money for particular purposes in my, in my life. I think that a lot of people don't know that you can do that. To Kyle's point, I think even more people don't know that that's something you might, you know, put in writing before you take oh, yeah. a, a job on, right? The, the other thing is, um, the other thing I would negotiate is a six to 12 months severance package, no matter what. When you, when you succeed doing that one, let me know. Because I, <laughs> I haven't, I've certainly tried that big and ne I've never made it to 12 I, Yeah, I take a lot of my cues from Sam Jacobs who founded a group called Revenue Collective, and he is a huge advocate for the six-month severance. Um, but it's really, you're right, it's one of the harder things to negotiate. So those are probably the two things that I learned after the fact. The other thing on the VC side is, um, uh, you know, I, I got to see how decisions are made within like a venture capital group when they look at growth numbers. So we would sit in a room and look at all the portfolio companies and all their growth numbers. And I got to see like how, how the V, how the investors were looking at this marketing leader or this sales leader, if growth was stalling at this one company and what they were looking at, like, Oh, the conversion rate between this and this is down or three AEs just left. And it was really interesting to watch how, calculated calculating some of them were with some leaders in these portfolio companies because they were in the board meetings with them right which is fair but i i don't think i realized that beforehand of how deep a good vc firm gets into a company um like openview as an example they are very very deep in their portfolio companies because they want to see them succeed what do you, um what do you what do you mean by calculating I, th there's a formula to a lot of this stuff, right? We know that 10 million in revenue, there are very, 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 very few venture backed companies that get to 10 million in ARR. I think it's like 1% is the stat. There are very few that get to 50. There are even fewer that get to 100, like a handful. And I could see the 1 to 10 million, the 10 to 50, the 50 to 100, where what the VC, what the investors were looking for within leaders. And I, I always thought that I always thought that uh, I could be a Mike Volpe of the world that could scale a company from zero to like 
hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars without leaving his post, right? The v, he was the marketing leader at HubSpot. But I, it's really, really hard to do. And so they looked for very specific things in different revenue bands where if, if a leader was failing at top of funnel or they weren't thinking about repeatability within one to 10 million, it was a warning sign for them. Between 10 and 50 or 10 and 30, they weren't thinking about industry specific segmentation. It was a warning sign. At 50 million, they weren't, if the leader wasn't thinking about global pursuits, it was a warning sign. So that's what I mean by calculating. And I don't know if calculating is the best word, but they had, they had specific things they were looking for in different revenue bands that could be a warning sign that it might be a time to change that leader. Does that make sense? So I'm curious because we, we've seen this and we've talked about it a lot and you talk about it on the, on the marketing side. What do you think they're looking for on the sales side as you go from 10 to 20, 10 to 50 or 50 to a hundred million. Do you have any visibility scale. into that just based on your experience? I mean, Scott, Scott can speak to this better than I can, but it's scale in my opinion. It is, can you, if you're getting, if we're writing a $40 million check at a series B and you cannot scale a front, a frontline sales team, like you're in trouble as a sales leader. Um, but what does scale mean? Hire, hire, being able means? to hire 30 reps and get them to quota in six months. Um, I, I, mean, I, would, I would also add to that, like knowing which other ancillary supporting roles are necessary yeah. in order to do that, right? Sales like, engineers. Do I need sales engineer? Do, how many sales operations slash enablement people do I need? Uh, do I need, you know, any field sales reps, for example, or something like that? Like when, I, when, we went, when I was at Qualia, I, I built an entire team called Industry Relations, which is basically a bunch of people who went to all the events, they're sort of, they should have been under marketing probably, but that's, that's what they were doing. They go to these events, they network like crazy, right? They don't do any like hard selling or closing, right? Yeah. Um, so all of those kind of roles that maybe are less obvious, right? When is it time for us to go way up market and hire some strategic account kind of reps and, and that type of thing? These, these are some of the things that, you know, I'm sure that they're looking at when they say, you know, does Scott or does Kyle have the ability to think strategically enough to take us to that, you know, next level and all that kind of thing. The, mm -hmm. the one thing that certainly through experience on the sales side and hundreds of others would corroborate this. And I'm curious if you will, knowing as part of the VC formula, if you will, um, there's so much credence given to somebody who's been there and done that as opposed to somebody who maybe can do it and hasn't done it yeah. yet. Right. Oh, yeah. So let's, you know, I don't want to jinx you or anything, but like what happens when somebody comes in and says, well, you know, Kyle's never been the CMO at a publicly traded company before. So we should probably top him off and, and find a marketing leader who's, you know, had a $500 yeah. billion dollar budget before. Right. Yeah. I, I would, so I, I was recently talking to, um, I'm going to just butcher his last name, but I know I practice Anthony uh, Canada, who was, he was the CMO at Gainsight. Now he's at front. And he made a good comment about this because I think it's fair is that as a shareholder of a company, if it's scaling past the point where you feel like you can handle it, where, you know, for me, it's like, if brand isn't that important, it's more about process and budgeting. You need to advocate bringing somebody else in 
and you need to piece out because your share is going to be worth way more if you bring somebody in that actually does it well. And that's where I feel like I, I don't think a, a good VC firm is ever, um, ever wants to replace somebody. I think it's just the reality that some people are better at scaling between 50 and a hundred million. And some people are better at scaling from one to 30. Fair, fair. But what if you're one of the people who are at 30 and you don't feel, don't feel like, yeah. And, Uh, and, and, and your results show that you're handling it. Okay. But you know, my, I've had a lot of conversations with people who are like, yeah, I got topped off and you know, there really wasn't a clear cut reason other than, well, Kyle's never taken a company to a billion dollars before. Right. So then you get kind of stuck. Right. It's, it's, I I feel like I understand both perspectives and I'm, I'm waiting to hear responses from somebody that like makes sense and resonates with me. But but is it really stuck? Is it really stuck? Because I, I, I mean, you could, you could ask, I mean, I'm going to throw him in here, but Dave Gerhardt, I, I mean, he's great at a specific revenue band and he's got a process and he has a playbook and he's going to repeat it over and over and over and over again. And I feel like I, I might live in that same world where I'm just better at a certain revenue band. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I can relate to that because my whole career, like I've been the zero to 25 million guy, but I would be lying if I didn't say there's been more than one time I've been resentful for having to try to articulate why I'm capable of going. Yeah. To- oh yeah, for sure. And I, and I haven't, I haven't experienced that yet. Yeah. So. And so it's all, I don't, and I don't know Dave well enough to answer for him, but like, I wonder if you just end up changing the narrative for yourself to, to seize control. So rather than like, you know, well, I'm, I'm stuck or I'm, you know, frustrated cause I can only get here and nobody gives me the chance there you just reframe the narrative and you're like, well, Scott's the zero to 25 guy. Dave's the zero to 20. You know what I'm saying? Cause you try to, you try to regain control of it and spin it in a positive, you know? Yeah. And I, and I won't, I won't lie to you. Like I, I would love to, to scale, you know, less than lead to 50, hundred, whatever, hundred million. Right. But you know, we just have to be honest with ourselves on where, where we feel like we'll do the, we'll, we'll be the happiest. Right. And I know like, and, and most successful, like you sure. were saying, um, you know, that guy, Andrew, I think you said, you know, told you that there's, there's, there's a big difference if like, you're clearly struggling, yeah. or arguably <laughs> yeah. failing, right? If you're effing it up, you should be sound. That's, that's, that's a different story. We all agree on that part. There's also value, I think too, for you, Kyle, if once you know your niche, right? Um, you go in and you do your deal and you built this, you know, this is one of the reasons that it's important to try and build a strong relationship with your VCs. Mm-hmm. Cause if you can get them from, you know, where, from here to there, maybe they'll put you in another place. And then you yep. all of a sudden, you don't know, to your point, we don't know which one's going to hit. Right. Right. And I know Scott's been able to do this too, is that his, his approach once you may not like it, he doesn't like the fact that he hasn't been given the chance to do the hundred million in the, in the, in the public but he's been able to go here, here, and here. And now he's tripled his opportunities to make something happen. Right. And, and so there's value in that approach too. So it's, you know, I think it's, it's about perspective. I also think it's about time in your life too, right. Where it's like, you know, you know, if you know that this is your niche and you can do it in two to three years, then by all means, maybe that's what you do when you focus. um, And then you can sort of spend time on your family versus, you know, trying to run the whole seven or eight year yeah. gambit 
at certain places. I mean, for me, guys, I, I freaking love software. I love it. I love working in software. I love the speed of software. I love how um, focused it is on growth, even from a profitable perspective, right? If you're in a profitable software company, you're just printing money. Like I, I'm not in this world of, Hey, I need to find two companies and exit and then be able to like consult for the rest of my life. I just, no, I, um, look, no, no offense taken. No, offense no. Taken. <laughs> no, not, not specifically, not you, not consult the rest of my life, but just this idea that you have to, let me rephrase that. Cause that's definitely not what I meant. When for some reason people search for this IPO where you will make a huge amount of money and then you could go do the VC route or whatever. And, and I just, I'll be happy if I work at 10 software companies and make them successful and change people's lives because lessonly, we have 170 employees. That is a huge amount of people. That's second degree from those people that we're paying. And we are changing a community because we're growing exponentially. We're good at what we do. And if I can do that multiple times over, then I'm gonna be happy. And that's, that's kind of where the secondary thing's important that we were talking about on the contract negotiation because you can make money growing to 25 million. You don't have to have an IPO to make money that can, that can be more than just your OTE. Right. So I, yeah. I didn't mean the consulting round, man. I would love to be a consultant, frankly, but. <laughs> on the, on Scott's, just tired, Scott's just tired of playing, being stuck in the double A ball league. Like he's, he's trying to make the jump oh, double A to the majors. Here, here we go. Here we go. Right. On, the, on, the on the community front, Kyle, um, is the majority or all of your team at Lessonly in the Indianapolis area? Yeah. So, so talk to me about this, because this is actually something that I um, am pretty passionate about, actually. And it's, it's the, one of the main reasons why I left San Francisco and came to Austin nine plus years ago now. You know, nine years ago, Austin was significantly smaller than it is now in particular on the tech kind of scene. And I felt like, well, here, this would be really cool to like be a part of building a couple companies in this emerging kind of market and take some, you know, pride from that. So I wonder, is that part of the fun for you in, in being from Indianapolis as well? Like, it, do you feel any kind of, um, maybe not responsibility is not the right word, but just like, pride and sense of ownership like yeah let's let's get indianapolis on the map here you know um a little bit i'd say the majority is more the people you know and it just so happens that a lot are in indy i think that's going to change based off of the the world that we live in right now right but yeah. i do you know i spent two years in boston and we loved boston i would go back to boston i would go i would go to a different city and see that i think it's just the the 35 people on the marketing team, me being able to see what, how that's impacted their lives and also the people that have left to get better jobs at other companies. And we, we have a brighter indie foundation at Lessonly where 1% of our revenue goes in and we pick four nonprofits to give to every year. And I, I just, I think that you have the ability to do that as a high growth software company because you're generating so much revenue, right? And you have the ability to make a bigger impact in a quicker amount of time, in a shorter amount of time than somebody that might be scaling a profitable software company that just takes longer. Now, in the world of product-led growth where you can do 10 million in revenue with five employees, I think that's a completely different <laughs> world, right? But 
as it exists today, that's why I love software. It's just, it's, it's fast and it makes big impacts if you do it correctly. And in, in, in terms of affecting people and managing people, how are you managing people? And this was another question from last night's Thursday night sales that I want to get your take on. Um, David McHale said yeah. something to the effect of, you know, I'm, I'm used to managing a dozen people and I'm about to manage 60 people. What are the differences in, in approach between managing a team of, you know, a half dozen marketing folks to a team of 35? I think you said you have. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the it's your managers the people that report to you. Um, I think that's probably the biggest difference for me. I've, I have to, I would be lost if I didn't have a direct reports that were really good at what they did. And that's, that's kind of, if you're going to scale from 12 to 60, that is the must. It's like, and, and what's it, I agree with you hundred percent. What's the differentiator between an average manager and a great manager who's making your life easier? Hmm. Pro being proactive with asks. So they actually go do it instead of just asking you all the time about whether they should do it. And then they ask for forgiveness later. I appreciate that more often than not. And empathy because I have, I, uh, I have almost zero <laughs> empathy. Like I just, we did a, here's, just here's a quick, the title of the episode. Yeah. I have zero this, empathy as a leader. You know, the leadership like exact survey things that you can take for like your EQ. There's a set, we did that as an exec team at Leslie, and there's a section about empathy. They had five questions, and I, and I rated like zero out of 100 on all five. <laughs> I was like, holy hell, I've got work to do. But, you know, my direct reports of, I've, I've worked really hard over the past three years to change that, right? But I, well, here's, the, here's the beauty in that, though. The, be the beauty to me is one of the things you need to be really good at as an executive leader is you have to be really self-aware. And if you know, if you know you have particular areas of weakness, if you're trying to build a strong direct manager team underneath you, you've got to hire people who are you good at things that you're terrible at, right? So if you're terrible at empathy, <laughs> then you need people around you who are high. Care. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, and, and that's where like it's, it's unique because we kind of hire off of those two things, proactivity and empathy. And so my, my leadership team, like our, our director of marketing that handles all of our inbound was at Young Life. He wasn't even in software before he joined Lessonly. Um, but he is really, really good because he's proactive, Ben Battaglia. He's proactive, he has empathy, and he knows how to move quickly. And it didn't matter that he, was, that he wasn't in software beforehand. So I want to I dig in on this, and then I know we need to wrap it up, but what have you learned to do, to try to be more empathetic? Uh, listen, probably the number one thing, like actually listen to people when they're talking. How do, you, how, do you, how do you know that you're a better listener now than you were before? What did you do differently back then? Um, I, I think it's just understanding where, like actually understanding where people are coming from, both in their personal life, on their, on how they work, how they play, how they approach pretty much everything in life. Beforehand, like, I think I was decent at it, exact target in Salesforce, but, I, you know, I didn't really. Apparently you weren't. You weren't <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe I wasn't. Maybe I wasn't. But it's, but it's, it's asking. Sorry, dude. Yeah, it's asking them. It's, it's caring about 
what they're doing on the weekend. It's caring about what they're struggling with. It's, it's, and I'm not, I'm far from perfect, but that's kind of where I tried to shift is like caring about what people, what people, um, cared about outside of work. Honestly. Did you care or did you just do it and go through the motions? Cause that's what you were supposed to do. I, I initially did, but then I started caring and that sounds terrible. I care about all my people, honestly, but it's like, and I'm not going to base whether I'm a dick or not on an EQ test, but because yeah, I know that I'm that's, not. That's the whole reason I'm asking the question. Cause I think there's a lot of people out there who's like, Oh yeah, I listen. I know how to listen. Or, but then we know internally when they ask that question, just internally, they're going, come on, I don't really want to hear about the cat. Right. And <laughs> you know, like they, that's why well, I, I don't ever want to hear about uh, a cat, but well, yeah, I'm not a fan of cats at all, but, one of the best one of the best tips that I got twenty ish years ago on on being a leader was somebody told me if you want to show that you care to your people, ask them about their kids because people love to talk about their kids it's a source of joy and pride and all this and then the backdrop to that was and remember what they said yeah. right so like you know if Richard was my boss, you know, he'd be like, Hey, how's things going with the family? How are the kids? You know, how, how did their, how their baseball tournament go this weekend? Like, cause he remembers, you know, sports being central to what's going on in my kid's life. So it's that combination was, you know, ask somebody about their kids and, and their family and then remember the answer and kind of, you know, use that to show that you care and you're paying attention and, and whatnot. I've, I've always, I've always remembered that. And you have no excuse now because Zoom records everything. So <laughs> <laughs> go back and study the tape. Get yeah. it right. <laughs> get cor get course or gong on there and search kids. Yeah. <laughs> have all of your all of the information you need. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, this this has been a lot of fun, Kyle. You know, we we've, we've yeah, got thanks. one last question for you, obviously. Um, but before we do, we just want to give a shout out to our sponsor of Lead 411. If you are looking for uh, intent data, direct dial phone numbers. Uh, you need to you have a cool plugin on your Chrome browser. Be sure to check out Lead 411. We appreciate it. But Kyle, what, what can we do for you? How can we be supportive to you and, and some causes you're behind or, or things to support your community? I mean, causes, my cause is uh, a group called Child Advocates. They have a workshop called Interrupting Racism in Children, um, where I give, I recently did a 100 mile fundraiser where we raised $7,000 for them. That's where I focus. Of course, we already talked about the Wesley Foundation at Brighter Indy, um, which is on our website. Those again, just for people to, to hear them? Yeah, so Child Advocates. Uh, it's, a, it's a workshop called Interrupting Racism in Children. Um, that's done here locally in Indy. And then uh, Brighter Indy is Wesley's foundation. And most of our giving has to do with um, kids so uh, elementary school junior high um and all of it's at lessonly.com awesome that's thanks. really cool man thank, thank, you. Uh, thank you for sharing thanks. those thanks so much for spending some time with us kyle i know you're a busy guy man no we we all are i appreciate it it was fun he needs to go ignore some employees that's right he doesn't care <laughs> no it's easier at home you guys you just shut the zoom down and you go mow the lawn or whatever <laughs> Thanks, Kyle. We appreciate it. Right. Thank you.